Welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. I'm having a very, very special guest, Noah Smith here. Uh, Noah writes his Substack and is a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Hi, Noah. Um, nice to have you on the podcast. Hey, great to be here. Um, my first question to you is, what is your writing process? You are a pretty famous writer on uh, Substack. Uh, what is the process from idea to uh, actual post on my email? I mean, you know, the, the answer is that there's not just one. Um, there are certain people who feel the need to comment on everything in the world. And I'm one of those. And <laughs> I generate... I must generate four ideas for posts for every one I post. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe just two. Two posts for, I, you know, so that means I'm, I'm tossing out half my post ideas. So, you know, I just okay. scan Twitter, read some blogs and, you know, papers, whatnot. Everything that comes across my, my brain, comes across my, my you know, sensorium mm-hmm. is linked to something else. Like, you know, I, I think, oh, that, I, I can apply this to it. And so, a lot of what gets done is just cross application. It's like, I see something in the news. I'm like, oh, I know an econ paper that's kind of about that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, sometimes that's not always true by the way, but that's a large, that's a significant portion of stuff that I'm writing is just sort of making connections between things. Um, and then, you know, of course, sometimes people get into arguments and I feel the need to jump in or sometimes I have like a big idea and I feel the need to sort of espouse that big idea. So there's other, things besides uh, that. But I think just sort of trying to explain what's going on in the world mm-hmm. is what keeps me going. And to, you know, I've, I've always said, writers should write for themselves first and foremost. And that's true of me too. I'm trying to explain the world to myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, and, and what this means is that I'm, I'm not speaking to people from the vantage point of like, I know everything here, let me explain this for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is the the attitude that unfortunately sometimes like Vox can can fall into. Um, the idea is I'm learning about this. Let me try to make sense of it and explain it to myself, and in the process explain it to other people too. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes that makes sense. Um, uh, you tweet a lot along with writing. Do you think Twitter has made you a better or worse writer? Definitely worse, because Twitter. <laughs> I mean, Twitter forces you to be glib. It breaks up your thoughts, um, you know, into uh, pieces, and it makes you very, very good at writing things in tweets, but also accustoms you to doing that and makes you worse at writing in, you know, any form that's long enough to really convey a nuanced and complete idea. And that's one reason I started the Substack is so that I could, uh, you know, sort of um, work against that, so I could get back to my roots of writing in long form. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of writing, one of the topics you have written about is uh, um, American competition with with a China in the twenty first century. Um, one one thesis that seems to be spreading fast that China has one point three billion people, America roughly a, a quarter of that. Um, China has you know so, um, so many years of catch up growth to do. America's at the frontier, and so because of that, China will beat America in this geopolitical and economic rivalry they have. Um, what's your take on that? Well, sure. I mean, China is a much bigger country than America. Um, it's a bigger country than everyone except India. Uh, so China is going to have a larger total economy 
you could argue it does already if you think the exchange rate is significantly depressed by capital controls. Mm. Um, certainly in PPP they do, but uh, it, it's no longer clear that America even has the largest economy in the world. Um, so yeah, it's, it's inevitable that China will be a bigger economy than America. Mm. Whether it's more technologically advanced than America, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that we have yet to see uh, whether or not China's unusual model works at higher income levels and whether or not they are truly able to sort of invent, you know, technology that rivals the best that places like America and Europe and Japan can put out. Um, you know, in a couple of domains they have, but a lot of their stuff they've really, you know, sort of um, reverse engineered. Mm -hmm. Uh, like German trains, for example, you know, uh, China has some of the best trains in the world. Uh, they called in German companies to build these trains. Then they reverse engineered all the stuff, gave it to Chinese domestic companies and booted the German companies. The German companies are mad, but who could they appeal to? Mm. When you're big and powerful, you can do things like that. And so um, I think that you, so one interesting test is the semiconductor push. So right now China is pushing very hard to have top semiconductor companies. Mm -hmm. um, whether or not it can intentionally get a better semiconductor industry than the leading countries, you know, than Korea, Taiwan, and the U.S. and these countries, that will be, an, that's an interesting test. So, so China has this unusual system. Mm -hmm. We've seen recently how unusual it is with the crackdown on everything from internet companies to, you know, a girly looking man on TV. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, so, and this is unusual. And it remains to be seen, you know, we have all these theories about whether or not this matters. Mm -hmm. Maybe it matters. Um, and so I'd say that, that in terms of overall raw power, yes, China's just that big. In terms of technical competence, remains to be seen. Now, in terms of overall power, China can outmatch the US, but it's not clear that China can outmatch the US and a large coalition of other countries. If the US you know, India, Japan, and, you know, a number of other countries were to combine, you know, their, their powers, it's not clear that China could sort of roll right over that, roll right over that. And so I think that that's what a lot of people are now thinking, you know, alliances are drawing closer together in, uh, you know, in Asia. And I think that people are thinking about that balancing act. Then again, to be fair, I'm uh, not, um, uh, you know, foreign policy expert. Mm. And I don't think anyone really knows what determines comprehensive national power in the age of the internet and in the age of modern information technologies, et cetera. It's hard to know. And Xi Jinping obviously has his theories and has his ideas. They're a little old fashioned. You know, internet bad, manufacturing good, stuff like that. Mm. A lot of people in America have the same idea. You hear a <laughs> lot of people in America saying, why are we making these apps instead of manufacturing, which we're supposed to do? You know, like, they're definitely thinking back to the 20th century when, you know, the industrial age, when manufacturing technology really determined who would win a war um, or just who would win a protracted Cold War type struggle. And so, um, yeah, so I'd say that we just don't know yet. But for the protracted Cold War-like struggle, isn't uh, having a lot of um, industrial uh, power at, um, you know, at the call of the president more valuable than having uh, people who are spending their life optimizing for ads? Well, we don't really know. So it turns out that, I mean, so, so in the industrial age, 
there were a lot of things that people thought would be very important in wars mm-hmm. that turned out not to be that important, right? People thought at the beginning of the industrial age, people thought, well, okay, if we have the best rifles, that will then we'll win, because that would have been true before, right? And then it's like, oh no, the people with the best trains and artillery are actually the ones who win. Oops, you're wrong. And so, and in World War II, uh, you know, the um, the old Japanese Navy guys thought, okay, if we have the best battleships with the biggest guns, we will win. They became completely useless. And the young guys who understood aircraft carriers, they knew it, they knew it was important, but the higher ups didn't listen to them. And so, you know, Japan invested too much in these big battleships. Um, in the Cold War, Russia had an absolute sea of tanks, enough tanks to roll right over all of Europe, thousands upon thousands of tanks, so many tanks. It had these amazing ICBMs, the SS-18s, that could just blast the world to dust. They had, you know, 20,000 nukes. They had, you know, the fastest bombers and the best missiles and all this stuff like that. Who won the Cold War? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, America had some stuff too. It's not clear who would have prevailed in direct confrontation. Probably we would have just blown up the world. But, <laughs> um, it, but whatever it took to win the Cold War was not what the Soviet Union had. And so it is, the answer is that we can sit here and say, oh, if, if a country has everybody wasting its time on the internet and like fandoms and like watching these girly men celebrities and blah, blah, video games, I don't know. If we say that that's useless and that what we really need is, um, you know, everybody to be making a bunch of semiconductors, that's what the youth should be doing or training to fight or making electric cars or whatever. Maybe that's true, but maybe that's not what, is going to determine who comes out of this, you know, on top or whatever. Hmm. It's hard to tell, you know, we can sit here and and be very sort of like, oh, come on, video games, who needs that? Yes, but maybe if a country tries to ban its youth from playing video games, the youth will not actually care about supporting the country and they won't have patriotism. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have internal dissent. And then in order to suppress that internal dissent, you crack down on local authorities. The local authorities get together and say, okay, this guy needs to go. They hatch plots against you, and guess what? Mm-hmm. Internal stability wrecked. Whereas in America, everyone's like, "Oh, video games! I can play that." Mm-hmm. And then, you know, no, and so it's it's hard to tell. I, and I just made that up, right? Because yeah, I don't think anyone's an expert yet in knowing how national power is going to relate to these technologies. That said, I do think it is a good idea to maintain manufacturing capability in a country, even if you don't push everyone into fact. Okay. That seems like a very Hayekian take, you know, saying that the government can't um, pre-decide what will be useful 20 years later in a war or what, 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 what won't be. But I think that's, that's somewhat, um, if, I, if I asked you in the abstract, do you think that, that this, this, this Hayekian idea uh, describes you very well, would you agree with it? Well, you know, Hayek thought that markets will solve this, but there's no market for geopolitical power. It's not a thing that gets bought and sold and traded. And so the signals, the price signals that Hayek really believed in as the way to solve information problems Mm -hmm. are not present. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's Hayekian in terms of like, oh, there's stuff we don't know. Well, of course, there's stuff we don't know. Uh, I don't think it takes Hayek. No, that I think everyone has always known. But there's stuff we don't know. And... um, but I don't think markets are the way to, to really solve this. Of course, you've probably got someone out there trying to design some very funky prediction markets that will tell 
both America and China what to do to optimize their own national power, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. They're probably working on that. I don't think it's going to work. We'll see. Uh, in the meantime, um, yeah, it's not, it's not a Hayekian information problem in the sense of like market based. Hmm. Okay. Um, a question I got some among people on Twitter was that you, you lived in Japan for a while. You could be described as a Japanophile. Um, what is one policy inter, uh, intervention America should copy from Japan? Right. Well, you know, I, I, I like to think that I recognize the limits, uh, you know, the advantages and disadvantages of, of the way Japan and America both do things. Mm -hmm. But um, I think there's lots of things we copy. Obviously, you know, everyone talks about trains and infrastructure and city planning. That's, that's the thing we really need to copy. The question is, is the political will there? It's not clear whether or not it's there. Mm -hmm. Here's a small thing. The homeroom system in education. Okay. Instead of having everyone stampede around to various high school classes for seven periods a day and then for extracurriculars, instead, have everybody stay in one place and have the teachers come to them. That's how a lot of Singaporean and Indian schools work, actually. Right. I mean, both. It's not a. It's not a big difference. Don't worry about it. It's not a. It's 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 not going to change much. But I I I get the uh, idea that um, is America too insular? It, does it copy too little from other countries in, in terms of policies? Does it have? Absolutely. I mean, uh, tech people call this not built here syndrome. Not built here syndrome. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, America has ignored best practice from other places. That includes healthcare systems of which Japan is a great one and of which there are many who, that are better than ours. Most rich countries' healthcare systems are better than ours. Mm -hmm. um, they get equivalent care for much lower cost mm -hmm. and copying that would be very important. Um, other countries build infrastructure more, much more cheaply than we do. Copying them would be very, very useful. Getting things done the way they get things done. Uh, so there's, there's a number of major important areas building housing that's that gets into more politics <laughs> but then um you know because nimbys don't want people to build housing in their backyard but you know certainly copying housing stuff would be great if we could bring ourselves to do it but there's all these areas in which you know america has accepted higher costs and lower efficiency for nearly everything and paying attention to other countries and trying to imitate how they do things would help us so much but americans are very insular this is an incredibly insular country we don't look outside our borders. Most of us don't travel outside our borders. I do, but then most people don't. And then, um, you know, people don't speak other languages, don't have friends from foreign countries typically. And um, the cosmopolitanism they get is through, you know, immigration, or at least has been in the past. But they don't get, they don't immerse themselves in other cultures and see how other cities are built and how other governments are run and how other companies are run and things like that. They don't do that. I'm a lot more optimistic on this than you are. I think that in the future, when um, foreign cultural exports get better, we're, we're already seeing this with, with anime and K-pop, and I'm sure someday you will have um, some, some really big Indian trend that, that takes over the US, but I'm sure that when this happens, they, people will start asking questions of, oh, uh, this country works like this through their movies or uh, uh, dancers or singers. And this will right. somehow end up. Uh, in the um, American psyche. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, the internet has helped because you can talk to people from other countries without actually going there. Mm -hmm. um, globalism in terms of consuming cultural products like K-pop has certainly helped. 
um, we're seeing a little bit of the opening of America. So what I was describing is primarily the present and past. Okay. But I think that the future could be better and that America could become a less insular country. I think you're absolutely right. Just, just to ask you, what do you think will be the, uh, the thing that Americans love from India first? Probably food or some weird Bollywood movie. I'm, I'm going with one of those two. Oh, yeah. Bollywood is so different than a, the American movies. It's like the idea of what a movie is is so different. Yeah, because, because Bollywood's a musical, right? Bollywood's a musical that happens to be a movie. And for the majority of movies, and even then, it's that most American movies I've I've, I've noticed have a storyline that's you know it's it's not like they're diverse st- storylines, but in Bollywood, if you look at the at the older Bollywood movies, the ones before twenty ten or so, they have one fixed um, storyline of a guy wants to marry a girl, girl's parents don't agree, and that entire thing gets repeated like thirty in thirty different um, variations for different reasons, but. It's, but, but obviously Bollywood's improving their better storylines. And I think that one day it's, there's going to be a Bollywood movie that, that becomes crazy uh, on, the, on the internet and then uh, Americans are going to love it. I think that might be true. My guess, if you made me guess, would be something dance related. Because yeah. if you look at TikTok, Americans love learning and doing dances. Mm-hmm. And India produces a lot of awesome dances. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point, I think there's going to be some sort of dance, participatory dance thing that India exports to America through things like TikTok <laughs> that every American is going to get in into and it's going to uh-huh. become like a hobby for people. It'll have to be more than just like mm-hmm. a couple specific dances that people repeat on TikTok. Mm-hmm. It'll have to be something more involved, something more elaborate. Like in Japan, there's cosplay, right? Yeah. Cosplay. Um, you know where... Uh- yeah. You dress up as, as characters from stuff. Americans are just much better than Japanese people at this by now. <laughs> we have surpassed Japan at this thing Japan invented. And it's funny because America and Japan each imitate each other's stuff and then and then surpass the other in the thing they didn't invent. Mm-hmm. And that's a very common pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, just um, just copying and improving on each other's stuff. And so... Um, but one of the things that, you know, uh, America's copied from Japan and then improved on is cosplay. We have incredibly detailed and like we love cosplay much more than Japan does. Mm. In Japan, it's a niche, it's a niche thing. People don't spend a lot of money on it. It's just like one little hobby, uh, much more than here. And um, so that's kind of cool. But it's, it's not just a couple costumes that people wear. It's design your own costume and make your own costume. So I think mm-hmm. whatever the dance thing is, will have to be something that unleashes the individual creativity of bunches of people and you know allows, I mean, the alternative of course is fandom, right? Mm-hmm. The alternative to, to participatory creativity is actually being fans of specific shows or specific you know, music groups or things like that. And it could be that, but I'm betting on something participatory. Okay, yeah. That's my That's thought. It. Yeah, I mean that's that is fair. Although with the added caveat that TikTok's banned in India, so we'll we'll oh. have to find a different mechanism for that too. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> well that's, we'll we'll figure something else out. You know, it's, yeah. uh, we'll we'll see another age of globalization. I think we're now in an age of like nationalism. And mm-hmm. after this ends, globalization will come back, and everybody will be like, "Yay, the world is one again." Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of India, a, a, a question that, I, that is surprisingly popular is um, India's experience to growth slowdown from 20, 
I don't know, 18 or so. And uh, COVID just made it really hard for developing countries to get back because they don't have vaccines. They they can't afford to um, have lockdowns and they're, um, you know, they're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Or do you think that, that emerging market growth in, in the 20s will be depressed because of COVID-19? Uh, a little bit. I mean, this year, certainly. Um... No, I think there'll be a bounce. I think there'll be a bounce back. Uh, I think that it's hard to predict how global uh, trade networks will will um, will enduringly change. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. these uh, supply bottlenecks and things like that. I think that could become a more permanent thing where the global patterns of trade actually start to show. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that's going to shake out, but I'm I'm thinking about it. You know, okay. Um, you um, once heard about the idea that at 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 one point of time, only if one or two countries can become rich because they are the ones who will export to the developed market at that point of time. Doesn't this make economic growth a zero-sum process on the country level? Well, yes and no. So um, the idea, so that theory is not my theory. That is the theory of Paul Krugman, actually. Okay, yeah. Um, and so Krugman and a Japanese economist named Masahisa Fujita. Okay. And um, so it's not just one country, but in the case of China, it was one country because China was so big. It's one region. And the idea is that the more of the world is developed, the more of the world can be a market for exports, the more more countries can then develop after that. So in other words, maybe when, you know, West Europe and America were the only rich countries, you could only see a couple countries develop fast. We saw Germany and Japan, Mm -hmm. you know, just a couple newcomers develop fast. Right. And then once those were rich and you saw a larger number of countries and a larger number of people, you saw Korea and Taiwan and, you know, mm-hmm. Singapore and Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, all these countries then started to get rich. Right. And then and Spain, you know, um, and then, you know, China just sort of belly flopped on the international trade system. And then China's so big that it was as big as all the rich countries put together. Mm-hmm. Bigger. And that meant that in that case, if it's this one region at a time thing, which is it's zero sum to some extent, but it's like less zero sum as time goes on. Because the more like, in other words, you can imagine a place, where's the last place to get rich? Maybe like, uh, let's say that like DRC is the last country in the world mm-hmm. to get rich, get industrialized. By the time DRC industrializes, everyone in the world will be looking for that last little scrap of cheap labor. And DRC will be the only place. And they'll all descend on DRC and be like, work for us, make things. And like, that will be really fast. And so I guess the idea is that each region develops faster than the previous ones. And each developing new developing region is uh, bigger than the previous ones. So you get faster and bigger each time. So yes, there is some zero sum effect, but the, the constraint gets alleviated as the number, I mean, like, 130 years ago, there was only one rich country that could buy your stuff, and it was England. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was it. 150 years ago, let's say that was the only rich country, and that was the only country that could buy your stuff. And so America was developing rapidly, and we were like selling as much stuff as we could to England. Okay. And yeah. then, but now, you know, you have newly industrializing countries in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Africa. They've got China to sell to. They've got Europe to sell to. They've got a bunch of other countries to sell to. So, you know, there's a lot more markets now. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me. As in economic growth is a 
the best way to, to do economic growth is to sell to already rich countries. And the more rich countries there are, the faster it is for the less rich ones to become rich. Is exactly yeah, that's a okay. Uh, on that topic, did you um, do you identify as a neoliberal as how however broadly defined? Well, it's not clear. I mean, in the last seven years, America has had a large ideological upheaval okay, and a, a period of unrest in which people are looking for a cause or philosophy to attach themselves to. Mm-hmm. And in that period, pe- many people have sort of groped for older ideas from the 20th century to ad- either adapt or to just sort of like labels to paste on themselves. Mm. And I think that's why you see people being socialists who are not thinking at all about workers owning the means of production or whatever, and not thinking in terms of Marxist class analysis at all. And you have people who are nationalists who are certainly not behaving, you know, like, like 19th century nationalists at all, mm-hmm. or 20th century nationalists. You have people who call themselves neoliberals who look nothing like Milton Friedman or Margaret Thatcher or Ronald <laughs> Reagan or any of these people. And so none of these labels necessarily mean what they originally meant because they're all sort of online tribes of people groping for not just meaning, but also collective sort of a gang. You know, people want an online gang and people who are kind of in the middle of the spectrum who want some social democratic ideas, uh, but who don't, you know, want to full sign on fully with like the Bernie Jacobin socialist types. Mm-hmm. They started calling themselves neoliberal and then it just sort of <laughs> stuck. And that doesn't mean they're like Milton Friedman and they're not. But it does mean that that's, that's a label that now means something different than it used to mean. And we can either try to be ideological enforcers and say, no, you're not a real neoliberal. You have to think everything Milton Friedman thought or you're not a neoliberal. We can try that thing all day and people do try that, right? Mm-hmm. They try gatekeeping this idea, but then the kids just roll right over them and the kids just paste a globe emoji in their <laughs> bio and just roll with it. And then you see people with globe emojis posting about how we need a bigger welfare state. Milton Friedman's rolling over in his grave, but who cares because he's in the grave. And the point <laughs> is that like, and his ideology is <laughs> in the grave too. You know, all these things, the new is new. And that is the one message that I want to, that I want to communicate to America. It is time for the new. We worship the old too much. We did really, really successfully in the 20th century. We were big, we were powerful, and we were rich, and we were cool. And we told ourselves that we were really nice, even though we weren't always really nice. But anyway, we were very successful in the 20th century. And it, and now is not the 20th century. And it's time for us to think anew and to be okay with novel stuff. Okay. Do not enforce the strictures of the past. Anyway, there's me on a rant. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's an answer, not an answer. But um, a question on the same thing is, um, there's this brand of... Um, tax-positive Twitter leftists, uh, the ringleader of which would be uh, Medlock, James Medlock, the pseudonymous account. What do you disagree with um, James Medlock the most? That's a good question. There's not a lot. There's not a lot. Um, I think that, you know, Medlock is very, very focused on universality of benefits and and no means testing. Okay. Right? That's sort of his crusade is for these universal benefits with no means testing. Um, with little as possible, right? Okay. Um, and there's so much going for that. That's a great idea. It's politically advantageous in the extreme. It is okay. um, simple. It is effective. It reduces waste. There's all okay. these ad- advantages, but I do really think 
that there's a few cases in which means testing really makes sense or targeting really makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, um, like uh, help for the homeless. Mm -hmm. We're not going to take every random person who has an apartment and say, here, here's your new home. We're not going to do that. We're going to take homeless people and give them a new home specifically. So this targeting, I think, really makes sense in that case. Okay. Um, so, but I, I really had to reach there because Medlock is great, and I agree with most of the stuff that he says. Okay, yeah, that seems like a fair answer. I I I also disagree with him on that, but I I also disagree with him on many other things. So it's not a okay. <laughs> it's not a uh, this uh, specific issue. Um, but I think what to go on a little bit. I think what people are realizing is that any capitalist economy needs a welfare state that's good and that is effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, I, we've passed the idea, we've, we've disregarded the original neoliberal Milton Friedman idea that you can get by without a welfare state, that you can get by on things like private charity and just pure economic growth and all these things. We, we know we need a welfare state, we know we need redistribution. Even Milton Friedman realized that, he had ideas like negative income tax um, and so, we're starting to realize that there's just a lot that the government needs to do for people who are disadvantaged in various ways. And the question is how to do that the best. And I think Medlock and people like him have the best program for how to do that. Okay. Um, I'll, be, I'll be going to college for computer science after my military service. Do you think more countries should have conscription? Do you think the US should have some form of um, military service, but it's not strictly the military, but some form of legally required national service, um, community service. I think so, but I also think it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Americans value their autonomy from the government too strongly for that. So unless there's a giant war or something, I don't see it happening. Um, I do think it's important as a nation building exercise. I think that when you have to, there, there's plenty of research, including from universal conscription countries that when you have a bunch of people cooperate in the same task together and work together on the same team with people from different backgrounds, be that racial, class, or religious, or whatever, regional, they not just form bonds, but they their attitude towards those people changes. It's not just enough to have contact. It's not just enough to take an order from someone at the cafe or to see someone on the street or to have someone do work on your house. That's not enough. You need to cooperate with them in some sort of shared mutual endeavor. That's what really creates bonds. And it's a nation building exercise. I think that's why World War II resulted in this massive upswing, as Robert Putnam puts it, this massive upswing in national cohesion. That was massive, but it was also temporary. It lasted for like a quarter century or something. But it was this huge upswing in national cohesion. And I think it's because everybody was in the army or working at like armed supporting factories and stuff. Um, all those people learned, you know, of course we had segregation in the military up until the very end of World War II. Mm -hmm. um, but we, um, but people learned to get along and see themselves as on the same team as a variety of other people. And it really worked. I okay. don't know if national like community service would have the same effect as military service, because it might be different if bombs aren't falling around your head or something. You don't have to rely <laughs> on other people for your survival. That's too high a price to pay, right? I don't want to send okay. people to a giant war just to create national cohesion. It's not worth it. <laughs> like, the wrong end no, of the trade off. Right. But I'm saying, like, maybe what you're describing could be done in an effective way. But I don't think Americans are going to stand for it, unfortunately. 
Okay. Um, speaking on the same topic, what are the causes of such a deep partisanship in America? This, if you if you look at clips, even from 2008, John McCain had a pretty decent um, speech where he said, "Okay, Obama won the e- election." But today, when you when you look at the news, it seems almost impossible to see that that level of respect for your political uh, opponents. Right. Um. There's a very deep answer to that question. Okay. That is, um, and you have to understand the American Civil War. Okay. When you understand the American Civil War, you'll understand the source of America's divisions. So, but that's true of a lot of things. I mean, like, you know, I imagine a lot of countries have history, a history of civil war that will, whose divisions persist to this day. Um, but the American Civil War was basically over two visions of the country. Is America a um, is America a white or white Christian nation, or is America a creedal nation defined by what you believe in? Um, are, you know, is America an idea, or is America a white tribe? And that's an incredibly crude and simplified way of putting it. And obviously that does not describe the entirety of the conflict, right? And there's lots that's going on that's not involved in that. I mean, there's there's lots of other stuff going on, um, but I think ultimately at base, it's the conflict between two visions of America. The, the vision of the Confederacy and the vision that the Union did not start out with, but eventually came to espouse during the war. Mm-hmm. And so if, the more you read about the American Civil War, the more you'll understand about our partisan divisions now, because the differences are not nearly as great as you might think. But um, there is one strand of thought that goes that ideas don't matter. Your, your thesis, both um, intellectually, like what you told me now, and uh, personally, because you are a public int, uh, intellectual, is that ideas matter in, in, in the um, historical sense that, that good ideas can lead to better societies. Another strand of thought says, you know, uh, ideas don't matter. People in the ruling class just do what's uh, beneficial to them at that point of time. So we should all quit and be public uh, in public uh, intellectuals and tweeting and blogging and uh, we should just we should just ensure that that that, that our in group has uh, the most political power possible how do you res- respond to those people uh well i mean the answer is i don't know i don't you know i i believe that ideas do have power and importance and you know i think um you got like a third of the world to completely upend their all their societies and live in this bizarre, you know, communism of communism mm-hmm. for seventy something years on a strength of ideas. <laughs> it's pretty hard, you know. You've got you had like um, a whole bunch of of lands and countries that had really nothing to do with each other, no communication, suddenly be culturally unified by Islam. Mm-hmm. Right, that's just an idea. It's a, you know, it's a system of ideas, but it's an idea. Ultimately, um, I think ideas matter a lot, but history isn't the kind of thing you can run controlled experiments on. And so I don't think we'll ever really know if I'm right about that. Okay. Um, you, you, you know about factory farming a few days ago. 
Um, hmm. You know two separate things there. The first is that factory farming is a morally horrible practice, and it's extremely unfair to the um, uh, to the to the animals we kill. And next thing you say is, I quote, I'm certainly not going to stop eating meat. And the reason is that, that I'm a monster. Um, right. uh, I'm puzzled by this. Why? Uh, I'm bothered by it too. No, um, is your is your objection that this is asked and answered, that you just can't bring yourself to stop eating meat? Uh, I mean, a little bit of it is that because you know, I lived in Japan before and I want to live in Japan again and you can't really avoid meat in Japan. But, okay. but, I mean, you can, it's just much, much further. Um, so a little bit of it is that, but I think there's actually something else going on there, which is that if I stopped eating meat and I took a stand and said, I will not eat meat anymore, I'm done with this moral abomination. I'll live the rest of my life depressed because I didn't change anything. Okay. I'll see there's still all the farms and the animals are still all suffering. And the, the tiny amount that my lack of demand changes the market in ways I'll never know the animal. Maybe there'll be like a couple of animals who didn't die because of my reduction in demand. Mm -hmm. but or maybe, maybe the income effect and substitution effect are so close. Maybe the price will drop so much that I'll have like next to zero effect because my slight reduction in demand will make meat cheaper and that will make people who want to eat meat, eat more, canceling out some, you know, nine, I don't know, nine tenths of what I, I'll never know. And so, and the frustration of that will be with me always. I'll be trying so hard to change my lifestyle and I'll see no results in the broader world. And that is a very frustrating prospect. And that's the real reason. No, but that just means your theory of change is that you will is that you will only do it when it's um when, when there's a very large effect, right? Because people have their own in internal ideas of how do, how does a change happen, and then you're basically saying that until it's there's uh, some decent possibility that my uh, me stopping uh, eating meat will uh, lead to lesser chickens being killed. And my second thing on that is you are very much underrating your value as a public intellectual because you have like. 200,000 followers, surely the, the impact of you not eating meat is, isn't going to be one person. It's going to be maybe a little more than one person. And of course, maybe if you blogged about it, tweet about it more, maybe, right. maybe it's going to be even more. How many people can I convince? Like, you know, by that, by that argument, I could just constantly tell everyone to be a vegetarian and then not even do it myself. It's like, if, if that's what I'm, I'm doing, maybe my blog post actually had an effect on someone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, I feel that there's a thing called a moral coordination problem, and I just invented that idea right now. And I think <laughs> that if I look online, I will find that a thousand people have written about this before, because that's always true. But um, I think there's this idea that that a norm that vi that violating a norm there's this idea that people don't want to violate a norm unless everyone else does. So norms tend to change quickly, right? One reason is just because of conformity. People want to conform. I have no desire for that to conform, you know, but I do want to feel like I'm part of a change in the world, like I'm really seeing the world change. And when I think everyone else is ready to go vegetarian, I'll go vegetarian. Or depending on whether or not you count eating tissue culture meat as meat, I'll eat tissue culture meat uh, as vegetarian, right? Uh, and so I think that I will switch when other people switch because then I'll be able to see the change in the world. 
until then not doing, you know, doing a small switch and not seeing the change in the world is frustrating. And humans, I think we have to understand that humans don't, humans aren't these like effective altruist rational morality calculators. Mm -hmm. Even people who want to do good do a lot on instinct and they do a lot on impulse and there's a lot of social stuff involved. And it's just, you know, we're not, we're not effective altruist robots. Okay. And we never will be. Okay. Um, speaking of animals, um, which is more central to your identity, Japan or rabbits? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And I don't know the answer to that. You, you stumped me, man. I do not know which is more central to my identity, Japan or rabbit. <laughs> okay. But, but, you know, of course, my answer has to be, why not both? <laughs> Rabbits yes. in Japan, that's the key. Yes, rabbits in Japan. Uh, how did you get into both rabbits and Japan? It's, a, it's not a common set of um, interests to have. It is not. Um, but it was just sequential, right? I was interested in Japan uh, because I wanted to live in another country and I'd seen some like Japanese movies and stuff that I liked. I actually didn't get into Japanese stuff via anime like uh, most Japanophiles do. Mm -hmm. Um nor cosplay, nor video games, nor those things. I got into Japan, Japanese stuff via indie movies un and underground music. Okay. Very different types of things than your, your standard like weeb. And I thought that's pretty cool. I want to go hang out there. Those are things I already liked in America. And I was like, I really like these Japanese versions. And then so I learned Japan, which I got a real kick out of learning foreign language. It was really fun. My first applicable foreign language, because when I was in high school, I learned Latin, which you can't really use. And then so when I got into uh, college, I took Japanese and then suddenly I was learning Japanese. Mm -hmm. And um, that was really fun to speak a foreign language, live in a foreign country. And so, you know, I went and met a lot of Japanese people and, uh, you know, forged strong relationships. And then it just sort of became my home away from home. As for rabbits, it's not even that interesting. It's not even that interesting a story. It's like my friend had a rabbit. I was looking for pets. I'd always had cats and dogs before. <laughs> I thought I'll try something new. I'll try getting getting a rabbit. So I got a rabbit. I really liked her. That's it. <laughs> okay, that's a that's a, a that's, I mean that's a fair story for both of them. On a more serious note, um, where should um, uh, um, ambitious people go today? I'm 18. I'd like to consider myself moderately ambitious. Um, where should the average ambitious 18 year old go? Uh, on the internet, where you already are. <laughs> okay, exactly the right place right now. <laughs> thank you for the validation i liked it <laughs> yeah you're gonna you're gonna meet you're gonna meet i mean like there's there's physical places you can go right um and that has to do with whatever you want to do mm -hmm. right if what you want to do like if what you want to do is like i don't know crypto stuff you don't need to be anywhere you can be anywhere you want um if what you want to do is like biomed stuff there's like a number of biomed hubs that are really important if what you want to do is like government you have to think which government where are you right now by the way i'm in i'm in singapore i actually You're am singapore. on the edge of deciding to apply to government scholarships or not so yeah <laughs> got, it. got it i mean in terms of countries to be a college student in i think that america has gone downhill and i would pick canada mm -hmm. if i were picking why because because um Canadian society, you know, everywhere, everywhere has a bit of unrest because America's unrest spills over to the world. 
that Canadian society is less in a period of unrest than America. Okay. There's less agonizing over who Canadians are, what it means to be Canadian, than there is in America. Right, right. On the day before the election, which is like five days ago, all, all of the leaders had a video saying, um, please get a COVID-19 shot. And I, I couldn't imagine that in, in America with a different political leaders or different political right. parties a day before the election saying, uh, do this thing for a common good. But um, what are the, the, the electoral incentives that, that make this deep partisanship so bad? Well, I mean, there are certain flaws. I mean, the primary system. Okay. Uh, you know, people talk about the Senate, the Electoral College. The Electoral College is really bad. The mm-hmm. Electoral College actually incur- mostly just encourages uh, civil wars over disputed elections. That's its problem. Um, the Senate has geographic malapportionment, although I think that that will decrease in the future. Um, you know, gerrymandering. It's Ultimately, it's the primary system that does it. The fact that you have the extremists within a party get to choose the candidates and then the, mo- then the general public has to choose between the extremist selected candidates. Hmm. Now the okay. extremists don't always win the primaries. They just have far outside heft. So you see some, occasionally they win like Trump, but then like usually you, you see the, the, a candidate who's like a moderate tacked to the, the right or left and have to support extreme stuff. But it, this is worse with the Republicans, but what isn't worse with the Republicans? <laughs> um, but it's somewhat there with the Democrats, too. And the idea is that um, you have to cater to extremists, and then we have the pivot to the center, which is the traditional thing you do once you have to stop uh, working for a partisan audience and start working for the general audience, pivot to the center. But the thing is that now there's become this idea that there are no swing votes in America. Okay. No one can be persuaded. It's just two, two separate tribes. It's all about turnout. And Democrats and Republicans both have this idea. The idea is that there's no should be no pivot to the center, no becoming a moderate for the general election. Instead, what you should just do is breathe as much fire as you can right up to election day, so everybody's really engaged and turnout. You know, and then and and that's the idea. And so, um, if we had different kinds of primaries, if we had open primaries or even caucuses, then we might have more moderate choices. Okay. I think there's a chance. That's fair. On a completely different note, I'm going to ask you a few serious um, economics questions now. Again, Uh, Should we reappoint Jerome Powell? Yes. Why? Absolutely. He's doing a good job. He's... um, you know, someone who is radically more dovish would risk inflation. Someone who is radically more hawkish would just be an idiot and crash the economy. <laughs> He's responsible. The Dave, Dave, Powell don't make a lot of sense. They seem kind of ad hoc, to be honest. Okay. And uh, there's nothing wrong with Jerome Powell. Keep him. Okay. Um, America had a, has had a debt binge since, I don't know, 2009 or so. Uh, do you think... Do you think this massively increases the risk of a run on the U.S. dollar? Not now, but 10 years later. That, that's the John Cochran th- thesis, right? The only way there's going to be a run on the dollar is if China decides to make the yuan internationally convertible and take on the burden of the reserve currency. Burden okay. and privilege. I should say. <laughs> okay. Um, do you think macroeconomics has improved since the uh, crisis? Ha- have macroeconomists uh, started incorporating the financial sector better into their models? 
They well, yes and no. So macroeconomists have definitely incorporated the financial sector into many models. The problem is it's not a very realistic model of the financial sector. Mm-hmm. There are also, some people who've done. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You know, how so? Why is it not uh, realistic? Oh, because a lot of it uh, is, for example, like banks that collapse because of lack of collateral, collateral constraints and things like that. Not a very close approximation to the sort of thing we saw in the global financial crisis a decade ago. Okay. Um, the, there are people who have done more, more realistic financial instability work, but it's very difficult and uh, often hard to validate empirically. Um, I think there's progress on it, but the the best financial models are still models that are impossible to shoehorn into like a macro model. And like, so, yeah, go like ahead. Hyman Minsky, like Mark Marcus Brunermeyer, okay, Rita stuff. Uh, like yeah, I mean Minsky. There's, there's people who formalized Minsky. I think um, oh, there were a couple of good papers that came out about this a few years ago, like formalizing Minsky ideas. Um, of course, there's um, the leverage cycle, right? Right. Jim Kopolis. That's like fairly Minsky-esque. But the thing is that Minsky was vague enough where I think people don't really know what Minsky, exactly what Minsky was talking about. So it's like Keynesian in that people will argue forever about what Minsky really meant and make various models that they think sort of get at what Minsky might have meant. And then they're like, no, well, that's not, not exactly what Minsky meant. How about this model? And we see a lot of that, uh, just like you do with Keynes, right? Yeah, and then- or Marx. Yeah, anyone. Any of these like famous old guys who spoke in like vague terms. And so you see that. And so a lot of these models are interesting, but it's not clear that one is like the true Minsky or even that, that or even that Minsky knew exactly what was going on, right? Like he wasn't an empirical scientist. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Speaking of Minsky moment and everything, there was uh, this idea around 10 years ago that uh, economics would be f- forever transformed by agent-based modeling. But that hasn't happened. Uh, Agent-based models have remained on the fringe. And the only place they've gotten a little far is finance and this financial crisis stuff. Um, Why not? Because um, it's no easier to test an agent-based model than it is to test a micro-founded equilibrium-based model. Okay. There's no fundamental advantage you get. So if you exactly understood exactly how economic, if you had a complete model of how consumers and firms behave okay. and all those things, you could build an agent-based model and have some, you know, maybe you could have some some predictive power to it. And that's how meteorology works, right? Right. We know particles behave, we don't model every particle in a rainstorm, but we treat little masses of air, little boxes, little units of air as if they're particles. And we get some amount of accuracy. We can predict like a week in advance or something like that, right? Okay. Possible yeah. agent-based models could give us that if we understood economic agents much better at the micro level. We are many decades away from that. Okay. It's an insanely difficult problem. No, because not something that we're going to solve soon necessarily. Yeah, I was I was actually thinking of doing this for a computer science class I'm taking on edX, and and I quit like maybe two hours into reading the literature because I'm like, okay, there's no way I can implement any of this without burning my without frying my brain. It's right. It's, right. Um, what so is the it? idea is what people end up doing is making simple agents and trying to quote unquote test the model by seeing if the macro results look okay. But that's exactly the crap that was done with the equilibrium, the so-called micro-founded equilibrium models. We made up bullshit rules for agents. We aggregated <laughs> them together. 
with equilibrium conditions instead of with simulations, but who cares? It's the same thing. Then we mm -hmm. say, oh, it kind of fits this stylized fact. That's bullshit. Like you, that's not, you can't test that. And <laughs> because ultimately there's just nothing testable about that. One of the joys of running this podcast is that I get to meet people who get extremely agitated on, on, on things that, um, normal people like my parents who are outside the room would, <laughs> would, would find out oh, who cares about that but is, I, I think this is the this is the the best part of um, the podcast <laughs> macro models are bullshit <laughs> you shake your fist when you say you've got to shake your fist and write a blog post <laughs> but anyways um my my last question to you is um what is the political economy of solving NIMBYism? How do you con convince a good portion of homeowners to say, okay, we're going to let um, development near our, our houses? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, who knows? The, uh, here's one idea. Housing upzoning lottery. Mm -hmm. You have a thousand different NIMBYs all support the same bill that will establish a lottery to see who gets upzoned. Whoever gets upzoned, they're the person who draws the short straw. They have to they have to take all the new people into their apartment, into their all the new apartments into their neighborhood. Oh no, now those people live next to us, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. You lose, sorry. But then everyone else gets to send the people they don't want to live next to them over to the person who loses. And so you have, so maybe you can have a state level lottery of who will take the new development. Oh, I made I that up. Uh, I, 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 I realize that, but almost every American I meet is averse to the authoritarian solution of uh, take it away from the, from the people at the, um, at the block level or city level and just allow a, 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 a group of economists uh, to decide how many developments every year and have a cap and trade system. It's, 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 an, it's an underrated thing. It is, sure. And I mean, so now Biden is proposing doing a pilot version of Singapore's housing pro program mm -hmm. where basically they, uh, you know, he wants the government to build houses on, on government land and mm -hmm. sell them cheaply to people. That's a great idea. Uh, we'll see if we do it, but it's a great idea. Singapore does a lot of housing stuff, right? As right. we know. Um, that could be a part of the solution. Ultimately, there's no solution because Americans' national pastime is not baseball and it's not sex. Americans' national pastime is avoiding other Americans. <laughs> I'm writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> that, and fundamentally our current age of unrest comes from the fact that we were a big country where everyone had room to spread out and then because of social media and the end of exurban sprawl, uh, we no longer had the ability to get away from each other and we were forced into the same room with people we had spent all our lives escaping from. Okay. Yeah, but uh, here we still, are. I'm sure there's, there's a section of people who want walkable societies, whatever. I mean, I live in a walkable society. I like it. It's great, you know, major trade-offs. All right. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks okay. for having me on your podcast. Love talking to you. Yep. I'll see you.